Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this exciting Thursday here in the nation's capital, where we are now little more than a week away from the Iowa caucuses. Coming up, we're going to dive into how Elizabeth Warren is counting on a robust network of volunteers and staffers to engineer a comeback in Iowa and examine why the Democratic primary has been a no-fly zone for negative attacks, even with less than two weeks before the nomination fight starts for real. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I am joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent, who we are happy to say has returned to Washington after what I'm sure were a blissful few days of red beans and rice in New Orleans. Emily, welcome back. Thanks so much. And we are also pleased to be joined by Dave Gatneys, who was somewhere slightly less fun last <laughs> week, but perhaps more informative for you, the, the listeners. He was in the snowy plains of Iowa. Dave, we're just glad you survived those icy roads. I have thawed out, I believe. <laughs> Have you thought out? Almost. The first it was day, zero there. When so. I saw you, when I saw you this, the, for the first time this week, you looked like you were still cold. <laughs> I was still cold. <laughs> you were still cold. I'm almost me. back to normal. Okay. So it might sound strange to say, but as we prepare for the opening contest of the Democratic primary, we can safely call Elizabeth Warren an underdog to win the presidential nomination. A candidate who a few short months ago looked ready to become the race's one true frontrunner has yet to regain the peak support she enjoyed in midfall, and some polls released this week show her support slipping even further. Making matters worse, Joe Biden's support has held strong, Pete Buttigieg remains popular in Iowa, and Bernie Sanders has actually seen a slight uptick in his own polling numbers. But all is not lost for the senator from Massachusetts because she hopes to have that she has a decidedly old-school advantage over her rivals in Iowa. Dave, tell us more about that. So the, the vaunted Iowa program that Elizabeth Warren has put together has been sort of the fallback for this campaign. It is it is sort of the base of support that she needs. And it was, you know, it was orchestrated a, a long time ago. She was the first candidate in the race, and the Warren team made a big bet on going big in Iowa. So they don't have the biggest team right now. Uh, Bernie actually has more paid staffers, so does Buttigieg. But their advantage would be that they've been there the longest and that they've embedded in these communities. And that's sort of what I got to look at when I was out there in the state. And almost everybody you talk to, even if rival campaigns, even unaligned uh, sort of Democratic operatives, county chairs in the state, herald the Warren program, saying they just do the field, do the interpersonal connections better than anyone else. They're more thorough. They're sort of omnipresent. One county chair told me every time he goes into the local coffee shop in a very rural county, the Warren organizer is there and and wants to talk not just about her but about the community about things going on in the state about a bill in the state legislature another person told me and this is a state legislator who ended up endorsing amy klobuchar said you know he got a personal phone call from warren and she was very informed of his particular pieces of legislation which you know is very important it's a, it's a it's a nice touch um so that all being said, as you laid out in your introduction, she is now an underdog in that state. She led an Iowa poll by as much as eight points back in the fall. She went through a tough fall with Medicare for All, Bernie resurgence, a, a Buddha judge bump. Now she's an underdog. And so she is more heavily reliant on this on this field organization. And, you know, I think that it's going to be tough for them to argue that they can win after Iowa if she doesn't do very well in Iowa. Now, 
you get into what very well is, and we can have that argument all day. Does that mean she has to win? Maybe not. If she's a strong second, probably pretty good. If she's third and she's eight to ten points behind first, that's a little more troubling. So nobody's really wanting to play the expectation game in Iowa. I'm sure you'll you'll find that as you <laughs> venture out there. Nobody says they have to win it. I would respect the candidate who did say that, though. Yeah, Just I would totally win for that. Would love that. Yeah. Would love that. I, I, but, you know, like, look, most people say this is an important more important for her than, say, Biden or Bernie, who are going to be going on no matter what. Bernie obviously has a lot more riding on New Hampshire, which he won last time. Biden, as we know, betting on the later states where there's more African-American, Hispanic, and Asian-American voters. So I think Iowa is important for Warren, is, is probably more important for her than anyone, maybe than Buttigieg, we could argue. And the big story will be if, if this field campaign, if this organizational muscle that she's put together can help engineer that comeback. Emily, it feels pretty old school, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we are talking about in a campaign where Mike Bloomberg has spent, uh, you know, like almost $200 billion. Uh, <laughs> no, $200 billion. $200 million, excuse mm-hmm. me. He's not that rich. It's not that rich. Million dollars in, in ads. Uh, we talk so much about digital ads and reaching yeah. people on social media. And here we are, you know, again, just a week and a half before the Iowa caucuses, and we're talking about a ground game. You know, it's always part of the alchemy, right? These campaigns that particularly when you're in Washington, you don't necessarily have a feel for you, or even if you're in Iowa, how effective this is going to be. But is, is this like a reasonable thing for a candidate to, to count on that their ground game, that their volunteer organization can put them over the top? I think in a state like Iowa, it certainly is because... Just, I mean, the nature of the caucuses are so different than a normal primary election. And, and also the tradition there that voters have come to expect that kind of personal contact. They're used to having all of these interactions and being kind of wooed. They and arguably per- demand it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, especially this time around, you have so many candidates. There might even be a little bit of, I think in Dave's first story out of Iowa, a little bit of fatigue, 2020 election fatigue, just because these folks have been around for so long yeah. and there's so many of them. But... You know, Warren, I've noticed it just in in not just Iowa, but everywhere. She seems to be the first one in a lot of states. She had the first one with organizers and, and state directors in places like Florida and Georgia. She is, is laying the groundwork, I think, for a long kind of hard-fought primary because I think she realizes that she may not win Iowa and there may be – I mean, her best hope essentially is – is to have there be kind of different winners in different early states because she's not in the lead in in uh, South Carolina. Biden is. New Hampshire's next door to her home state, but it's next door to Bernie, too. You know, like in her best case scenario, I think she wins maybe one out of the first three, maybe two out of the first three or four. And then she would be counting on her organization in these other states as well. So this is a big part of her campaign strategy from everything I can tell. And, you know, the last... Democratic President Barack Obama, his whole path to winning was he just out-organized Hillary Clinton. She seems to be trying to do the same thing. Yeah, and, and you know, it's not something we've talked about a lot because, you know, when it comes to delegates, right, and yeah. you're really in a, in a delegate fight. And in theory, some of these volunteers and staffers, you know, they're trying to make sure that there's a certain level of support all across the state. Dave, you, you picked up something interesting when you were reporting there. Um, and I want you to, to talk about it a little bit, how her staffers talk about other candidates. That was a kind of a fascinating portal into 
how the, the, the campaign is being waged. Yeah, they're very sensitive. I noticed I was sort of eavesdropping on these conversations, frankly. You go to a Warren event, and there's just a swarm of staffers, 20-somethings, with clipboards and beanie hats and puffy jackets, and they are bright-eyed, and they want to talk. And they eventually just want you to commit to caucus. But even if you don't do that, they want you to sign up for a volunteer shift to maybe make phone calls two days a week where they could lobby you to, to even push you there to get you to support her eventually. So when you go to one of those events, you can see the brute force in action. I was sort of sort of eavesdropping on some of these conversations that I would hear. And there's dropping is just another word for reporting. Reporting, right. Yeah. It's just right. Word for you know, because they're not look, they're, these campaigns don't want to reveal their cards. So that's what the advantage is of going on the road and seeing it and hearing it. And then, frankly, you can talk to voters and they will tell you what they just heard from the Warren campaign. So I so I did a lot of that. And I observed this one interaction was very interesting. It was 20-something female who was very compelling in her pitch. The guy said he was from Oklahoma originally and played on that. Oh, do you know Elizabeth Warren's from Oklahoma? And he's like, oh, that would kind of be cool to have a president from Oklahoma. So very casual banter. And then, you know, he indicated that he was still considering supporting other candidates, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, and Andrew Yang. She said, hey, you know, I was a Bernie supporter, too, so I totally get that, but said nothing else negative about Bernie. She did then say, but you know about Buttigieg, uh, the, the main difference is how they get their money. And she, you know, obviously noting that Pete does the high dollar sort of old school traditional fundraising and Warren does not. It's all grassroots donations, mostly online. But this guy was not ready to commit yet. He was like, look, I still want to see candidates. Like most Iowans, it's like they don't want to show their cards. Maybe they want to be wooed. But the time is drawing to a close it now is, for wooing. It's time, the, time for know, decisions. A lot of people told me that they're going to make the decision when they walk in the room. And remember, as Emily pointed out, I think we, we can't underscore this enough to listeners. This is a caucus. It is not a primary. This is a community event. You walk into your local school, and this is a two-hour event where – Someone will stand up and try to convince you. We'll make a case for Elizabeth Warren. We'll make a case for Pete Buttigieg. And you will walk to a different corner in that room. And it's a public display. Whereas in New Hampshire, you will go into a voting booth by yourself and then punch a hole or fill in a circle, however they do it up there, maybe electronic, and then walk out and go to lunch. But Iowa is so different in that people want to convince you. Your neighbors are sort of watching. Your friends are watching. And I think the other thing we should point out is that if you don't reach 15%, you then get a second choice because then those candidates are deemed unviable for delegates. So there are strategies going on already about how to appeal to the supporters of candidates who will not meet that 15% threshold in the Warren campaign. I got a little insight on that as well out there. But it, it caucus is so different than a primary. And... I would just keep underlining that to, to our listeners. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's an idiosyncratic process, kind of it, at different times charming and at other times, <laughs> well, it, it seems a little bit absurd yeah. that this is how we elect our president. <laughs> yeah. All right, Emily, okay, let's, let's talk big picture about Elizabeth Warren a little bit. You know, we talked last week. We asked coming out of the debate whether or not she would be able to harness any momentum out of the argument that she made so forcefully at the time that the women on stage, right? We're the ones who have won all our elections. We're the most electable. I'm electable. She has continued to lean in, if you will, to that message. 
couple of polls released this week, though, show her support, if anything, slipping a little bit. What's what's your big picture sense of where her campaign is at right now? Personally, I think it's smart for her to make that distinction because I think that's something people are talking about in any event. And for her to sort of take it on publicly, it, I think, is necessary. You know, it's so hard to read these polls. As Dave said, because the way the caucuses play out, what shows up in the polls may not be how things play out on, on caucus night, especially with these second choice voters like moving into different different corners of the room. It seems like everything is within a few few plus or minus, you know, margin of error points in these polls. So while Bernie or Biden might be leading and Warren might be in fourth, you could see very conceivably all of them end up with, you know, just a few delegates separating them on caucus night and the results. And then the question becomes, what is the media narrative out of Iowa? If it's just like, this is a mad dash, uh, you know, too close to call mm-hmm. kind of finish, I, you know, that's probably good news for Warren. So I think that she, as I said before, is kind of plotting this, this long game. And um, for her, the muddle is kind of probably works to her advantage. So her hope is to stay close, I think, to these others, not end up seven or eight points behind the top finisher and and then go on to New Hampshire, where she's, I think she's continues to pull pretty well in New Hampshire, um, but obviously has a tough race there as well against Bernie and and Buttigieg is also doing well there. It seems like the danger for her and the danger for Buttigieg, too, would be the perception that this becomes a a two-candidate race between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who, nationally speaking, um, in the national polls, um, lead and and, and maybe have put a little bit more distance between themselves and Mm -hmm. and the rest of the field, at least in some national polls. Um, But to your point, I mean, she has um, tried really diligently to prepare, to lay the groundwork and and other states um, beyond February, Super Tuesday and, and beyond. And that would seem like that's what you know she's counting on. And maybe, maybe the narrative, which seems to be now swinging toward Bernie Sanders, that as he maybe ticks up in some polls, that he's becoming more and more likely to to win. That you know, look, it always flips, right? Um, and that maybe when it does, she can position herself yeah. as a unity candidate. Is that realistic? You know, no one wants to play the expectations game, but if she has, like, a pretty good night in Iowa, she could suddenly be the surprise now, even though she was the favorite in the fall, having dipped, that actually in some ways plays to her advantage if she does well, um, because then it becomes like, oh, Warren outdoes expectations, et cetera. She has shown an ability to bring together some parts of the Democratic base that I think Bernie has not in terms of being able to pull from that especially liberal part of the Democratic electorate, but also pulling from like the suburban mom, white women. She, she has made a concerted effort to reach out to African-American voters in South Carolina. She's doing okay there. I mean, not spectacular, but no one is compared to Joe Biden. So I think in terms of appealing to the Democratic electorate, I think she could in some ways be that bridge between the ultra-liberal part. You could see it on paper. Yeah, on you paper. Could see it, you, could see, you could see it on paper yeah. for... For sure. It has not happened yet in, in, in practice. practice. Yeah. You know, I'm sure after uh, all this discussion about Warren and, and Biden and Sanders, I'm sure it'll be like Andrew Yang who surges mm-hmm. here at the, at the end. It's possible. Or Klobuchar. <laughs> or, 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 or Klobuchar. Klobuchar seems a little, bit, a little bit more likely. Speaking of Bernie, you might have seen a little bit of news earlier this week. Hillary Clinton said effectively that Bernie isn't likable enough. We are not here to psychoanalyze the former Secretary of State because there are plenty of other people happy to do just that. 
But we did notice it was the most recent high-profile criticism aimed at the Democratic Socialist. A litany of attacks that include criticism from Warren that he was a liar and Joe Biden that he had doctored a video purporting to show the former vice president arguing for Social Security cuts. And we noticed something else. The criticisms don't seem to be working. If any candidate, in fact, has momentum in this race per scattershot of polls released this week, it would seem to be Bernie Sanders. And that seems to be something of a theme in this race, Emily, that the candidates who do the attacking, mm. um, Clinton isn't a candidate, but we'll grant her a special exemption uh, for this, seem to suffer. And, and the candidates who are on the receiving end of the attacks don't seem to suffer. And if anything, in Bernie's case, again, they seem to be ticking up in the polls. Kind of stepping back, what is, why do we think big picture that these attacks seem to have fallen so flat and in fact backfired on the candidates making them? Well, there's a couple of things. Candidates are always fairly cautious about when and how they attack because they don't want to be seen, especially in a primary, seen as though they're undermining a potential future nominee. In this case, in this election year, I think that's particularly true because Democrats are so desperate to beat Donald Trump and they don't want to give the Republicans any more ammunition than that they already like have. That seems like the overriding theme to me, right? Yeah. They're all so f- worried about yeah. the general election. Like, oh, don't attack yeah, each don't other. Fight don't fight amongst ourselves. Right. Let's stay focused on the like end game here, which is what you hear a lot, even on the debate stage when they start going after one another. I mean, with Iowa approaching, there's certainly more skirmishing, but even... By most standards, the amount of negativity there's been, even though Biden and Bernie are kind of scrapping over Social Security, it seems pretty tame compared to what we've seen in past primaries. I had a, had a Democratic official this week tell me that the primary has been, quote, a pillow fight yeah. uh, so, yeah. so far and not nearly, not nearly as egregious and critical as past primaries he has seen. Uh, Dave, I mean, this is extending, you know, we've talked a lot about this phenomenon on debates, but we're not even really seeing negative ads. In, in, in the home stretch. We're seeing some online ads. Some digital stuff. Some digital yeah. stuff, some skirmishes. Right. But usually about this time, I feel like you see kind of like the heavy duty, yeah. big broadcast buys going after someone. What, what, we're not seeing that. No, and I think you, know, you guys hit the nail on the head. It's, it's worries about doing anything to damage whoever the ultimate nominee is against Donald Trump. And, you know, we've seen it all the way back to Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden. Was that June? My God, I'm trying to remember. But you may get a little sugar high out of it, but it hasn't shown going negative against your, one of your Democratic rivals has not shown to be a, a mark of success. I would say on Bernie's case... Because his supporters are so fervent and because they are so skeptical of the system, I think there is almost an amplified backlash when you go after Bernie. And, man, the Hillary thing, I know we don't want to get too deep into that, but, wow, her timing two weeks out (laughs) to go at Bernie and rehash 2016 when, you know, so many Democrats want to try to get over 2016 and you can't because Trump's in the White House and Hillary's still out there doing documentaries, but... His supporters, I mean, you guys see it online, they're rabid in person, and to stick that knife in him and say he's not likable, can't work with anybody, man, if he ends up winning Iowa, part of the reason could have been Hillary Clinton. That, and that is going to be irony because people are going to say, they're trying to do it to us again, they're taking it from us again, come out, rally for Bernie. And I think if we look back, say, two weeks from now, and he has won Iowa and New Hampshire we're going to go back to these events. Wow, they started poking at Bernie, and it only invigorated his supporters to come out for him. There's this interesting disconnect because some of his supporters, of course, are are pretty critical of a lot of the other candidates, just 
log yeah. on to Twitter sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Not that that isn't necessarily unique for supporters of any candidate. The one thing that's really stuck out this week, though, is how Bernie himself has really so aggressively tried to distance himself from the tax. A, a staffer of his circulated an email calling Joe Biden corrupt on the eve of the impeachment column. trial. Yeah. It was yeah. a, a column, and, and he, he apologized for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. He, when Hillary Clinton criticized him, he actually had a sort of rare moment of being self-effacing, Absolutely. I thought. Said, you know, on my good days, my wife likes me. You know, like a little, a little bit of humor from Bernie. He seems like very, very intent on signaling at all times that he personally is not here to attack any of the other candidates. And, and, and maybe that's smart for all the reasons that, that we've talked well, about. Well, that goes to the point, right? Don't go negative. Even Bernie, right. who's most willing to go negative, is sort of showing – restraint on these high profile attacks saying I'm not going to go there with you Hillary I'm not going to now he does want this fight with Joe Biden on social security which is interesting and we'll see if that has a sustained line of attack we see going into the final week here does he want to fight Biden on social security and say he wanted to cut these and I think like on substance he was willing to have the fights but this character stuff and whether Bernie's a nice guy or likable that I think he doesn't want to get into. Did you get any sense on the ground? I mean, how where where Bernie stands? Were either talking to other campaigns or voters or anything like that? So one Democrat who is a former Booker supporter said the thing about Bernie's people is they don't need a turnout machine. They are coming out. But the, the caveat he said is there are probably about twenty percent of them. Is that enough to win Iowa? I don't know. The the other thing is they said is they don't embed in the party like these other campaigns. These Warren folks that I talked to said, you know, they go to every county Democratic Party meeting. They've got staffers there. they got sign-up sheets. They said, Bernie's people, you don't see them at these events. Why? Because they're paying the local bartender to talk about Bernie to patrons who come in who have never caucused before, convince them. Is that true that the bartenders are— Well, I was told one anecdote. I did not verify this. But but, but another campaign said they're doing types of things that are outside the political infrastructure. So while the Warren and the Buttigieg and the Biden folks are at the county party meeting and at the town hall, Bernie's people are looking for new voters. And part of this is, you know, some people think it's a myth that all these people are going to show up and caucus because it's like a two-hour investment of your time. And A lot of Iowans seem pretty happy to do just that. I but. think, but if you're a if you're a party loyalist, so mm-hmm. these are people that have, like, not participated before, and a lot of the theory of the case for Bernie is that he's bringing in new people, that these mm-hmm. polls are not accurate because he is bringing in brand new voters. It's sort of a Trump theory, right? The reason why the polls were wrong in Michigan and Wisconsin is because they weren't capturing these people who were never going to vote for Mitt Romney or show up for George W. Bush, but they came out for Donald Trump because he's a special candidate. That's the theory that I have, that I heard on the ground from the Bernie operation. Now, some people think it's BS. They think, like, look, this, people don't just show up. You have to have an organization. You have to get people there. You've got to be talking to them. But the Bernie case is a little bit different than any other traditional campaigns. I, you know, I was talking with a data and analytics uh, guru in the Democratic Party this week who we were talking about that, and he didn't dismiss it, but he said, look, the problem is a lot of candidates count on young voters and yeah. have counted on young voters over the years, and it has not exactly worked out yeah. for them. He also pointed out there's kind of an interesting phenomenon. You were talking about this you know, big turnout push um, and this big turnout surge that people are expecting both in the primary and then, of course, in the general election. And this person was making the point that it can be good for Bernie Sanders up to a point because, yes, you're bringing in 
a lot of people who aren't traditionally going to participate in the caucus. And as Dave just laid out, that's really where I support. But if you go too far with it, potentially, you're also bringing in a lot of normie Democrats. <laughs> you know, you're bringing in a lot of people who maybe don't even necessarily usually vote in primaries, but they're kind of mainstream, traditional, conventional Democrats. That's not the Bernie base necessarily. And so at a certain point, if you push turnout too far up, you actually drew like a bell curve yeah. for me. It actually could backfire on them. It was kind of an interesting, interesting dynamic to, to think of. Okay, it is time for my favorite segment of the week, where Emily and Dave are going to tell you, the listener, something that uh, hopefully you don't know, something new, fresh, or interesting from their reporting. Emily, you're up first. So sticking with the Bernie Sanders theme. Why not? Why not? <laughs> I was looking at the Monmouth poll results, the latest national poll, and Granted, I think the state polls are a lot more important at this point in time than than any national poll. But I did think it was interesting, and it speaks to why I think Sanders is trying to be a little more magnanimous, tamp down some of the most vitriolic statements his supporters are making. His negatives were higher than any other Democrat nationally. He was above 50 percent with people viewing him negative. The only politician they polled who was higher than that was Donald Trump at 55 percent. So, you know, as, as we pointed out, Bernie has a very devoted core group of supporters, but I think he's smart enough to know that he needs more than that to actually win the presidential nomination. And he's not going to do that if he continues to be this sort of polarizing figure. He's probably very sensitive to the fact that people blamed him and his supporters for the margin of defeat, you know, with with Clinton against Trump because they the Bernie people stayed home or they voted for the third party candidate. I don't think he wants a replay of that again. And I think he's trying to prove that that he could bring people together because it's the only way he's going to win. OK, Dave, you're up. So I did just get back from Iowa. And after I published a couple of my stories, a bunch of New Hampshireites were in my Twitter feed saying the old fashioned slogan, now Iowa, they pick corn. New Hampshire picks presidents. But, one of my favorite in all of politics. But it's actually not true. Go back and look at the last four presidents. Only one of the last four won their competitive New Hampshire primary, and that was Donald Trump. Barack Obama lost the New Hampshire primary. George W. Bush lost the New Hampshire primary. And Bill Clinton did not win the New Hampshire primary. So the last four presidents... Only one has won the, the New Hampshire primary. I'm not talking about the general, the, the primary, just to show New Hampshireites that they've got some work to do if they want to live up to that Dave, adage. I got to be honest. You're, I think you're flying to New Hampshire next week, and I'm worried you're going to be detained at the airport now. <laughs> the, like New Hampshire, like Stadies are going to be waiting facts. for you. Yeah, right. That, that's not going to help you. The truth is not an absolute defense in, in this case, not, not in New Hampshire. Mine is is just, just calling attention. Uh, you know, we always like to talk about on the show the – Keep an eye, at least one eye on the general election even now. One thing that Democrats are trying to make hay out of in an interview with CNBC, President Trump this week, kind of sort of in, indicated he was open to cutting entitlement programs. Now, look, you know, if you review the transcript, he didn't give the sort of clean quote that you would hope if you were a Democratic ad maker to put in a kind of ad. But it was a reminder just what Democrats really want to make this campaign about, because you saw just an endless number of Democratic operatives trying to make hay out of this. And in fact, Priorities USA, a super PAC that's supposed to spend uh, several hundred million dollars, let's say, in the general election. In fact, is already spending a lot of money. Their chairman, uh, Guy Cecil, put out a statement saying, let's be clear about one thing. Trump's position on cutting Social Security and Medicare will be featured in far more ads this year than the fact that he has been impeached. 
said this, of course, at the height of the impeachment trial in, in the Senate. Just a friendly reminder of what Democrats are going to try to make this campaign about. And there's just really nothing that gets a Democratic strategist more excited than the idea of criticizing Republicans on Medicare and Social Security. Okay, uh, I want to thank Emily and Dave for coming on the show. Uh, great job as always, guys. And uh, I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, of course, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. Talk to you next week.